Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, March 16th, 2010. All right, lots of emergent stuff to do today. One of the hazards of my job. Yep, that's emergent. Uh, that's emergent. That's yeah, pretty much emergent, except for the sermon review. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Uh, let's just put this out there. There's a lot of heretical ideas being bandied about, if you would, uh, and as a result of it, it requires the diligent Berean Christian to be in God's word and to test the spirits, test everything. You can trust God's word. How do I know this? Well, because Jesus Christ himself, you can't, it's, it's unwise to have a view of scripture that's less than his. And he considered it to be nothing less than the very word of God. In fact, uh, <laughs> All right, can, can show you how nerdy I am. Uh, this <laughs> this morning, I uh, it, you know how like when you wake up. This morning was one of those times when I was a little slow to wake up, and uh, the reason being is because uh, over the weekend, uh, I first time in twenty years, I actually had a migraine headache on uh, Sunday afternoon, and uh, yeah, the last time I had a migraine headache, my son Joshua was an infant. And so, you know, it just, it, it does violence to the brain, if you would. And so anyway, yesterday I was like 50%, but this morning, you know, I could tell that, you know, I was kind of on the men's and I started <laughs> kicking through my mind. You know, there was a particular passage of scripture that I was just chewing on, like in that halfway awake, halfway asleep kind of uh, moment. And I, I keep... Oh man, this is ridiculous. I don't know why I'm telling you all this. Uh when I, <laughs> when I go to bed, uh let's just say that I select usually between 3 and 4 books uh that I I cannot read one book at a time. I and so I I usually keep between 3 and 4 books bedside. I'll, I'll take them from uh my study into uh into bed with me and you know, and I do a lot of reading in bed. I have a nightlight and you know, it's one of those things. 
And why am I saying all this? Anyway, so I I went to bed last night and there was a passage of scripture that was just chewing in, you know, I, I think I had dreams about it. You know, nobody dreams about theology except for me. Apparently it's some kind of a problem. Anyway, so I was going, wait, there's a passage. Don't ask me why this is important. That where Jesus says that he sends prophets. And it's like it was, and I, I, it, it's been a long time since I've ever read anybody point that fact out. But then I had to go and hunt down the passage first thing this morning. So you know, it's like, quick, grab my Bible, and I'm in like Matthew 23, and where Jesus says, "Yes," and it says, "Jesus, I send you prophets and apostles." I'm thinking, ha, this is Jesus claiming to be God because who? God is the one who sends prophets, right? Why am I telling? Does this story even have a point, Roseboro? What are you doing anyway? So I was really excited when I found the passage this morning. First thing, I mean, because you know I'm sitting in bed and I'm chewing on this, and I had to grab my Bible to find this passage in Matthew 23, where Jesus says that He sends prophets. Because it just in my mind was one of those. Ah, see, more proof that Jesus is God. Are any of you as excited about this little story as I am, or am I? Is wait, yep, those are crickets that I'm hearing. <laughs> <laughs> so today let's talk about what we're going to talk about today and let's just move along because i'm feeling quite myself <laughs> i am such a nerd okay all right um okay our first segment today is we're going to be listening to a little bit of audio from a video from tony jones's uh blog uh website and i've entitled this little segment proof that the emergent church is far from dead Listen, those of you, listen, I know there's a bunch of people out there who think that this whole emergent church thing has, you know, crested, it, it was a fad, and that it's, you know, we no longer have to work. No, 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 no. You don't understand these guys and what they're doing if you think the emergent church is dead. They could care less what the title of the thing is. They don't care if it's been, you know, six months since they've updated the emergent village website. Tony Jones, Brian McLaren, Doug Paget, uh, all of those guys, they are busy, busy little beavers. They are hard at work, uh, you know, uh, basically promoting their theological agenda. And uh, McLaren's latest book, by the way, if I were Brian McLaren, uh, the thing I would be saying right now is, wow, I'm surprised at how little uh, resistance there is to my new book. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think McLaren, I, he, he should probably feel like he's accomplished something because I don't I don't see this huge outcry against. I mean, yeah, there's people that are writing against it. And if you look on the but for the most part, you know, there's very little except for in the way of the, uh, it, you know, a few bloggers here and there. I, I'm sure that somebody's writing a book at this point. Uh, of course, we cover it here at Fighting for the Faith, but I think McLaren probably thinks he's in the clear. You know, he's you know that maybe he played he rather than overplaying his hand, he might have played his hand at just the right time when people could care less about biblical doctrine and stuff like that. Anyway, so today we're going to uh, we're going to spend some time on Brian McLaren. I I need to catch up, if you would. Uh, so today, regarding Brian McLaren, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a look at uh, Brian McLaren's book. And in uh, pages 41 through 44, he talks about the difference between Theos versus Elohim. And I'm basically going to demonstrate that if you even have 
a basic understanding of Scripture, the one thing that becomes really clear and not hard to see is that Brian McLaren is selectively cherry-picking passages to support his thesis regarding uh, the Theos versus Elohim thing, and I will demonstrate it from the text and uh, it'll be it should be eye opening for those of you paying attention to the Brian McLaren thing and you know are worried about his book. We we need to put out sound biblical defense against the stuff that he's doing, but it's not hard. It's kind of like shooting fish in a barrel. And then we're going to look at question four and question five from the Brian McLaren series on the ooze. I wanted to get to this last week, uh, but then I d- read that article and we went long on it, so I did never never did get to question four. So we're going to look at question four and question five from the ooze TV. By the way. Just need to remind you all, if you have something theologically oozing, uh, that's not a good thing. That is a bad thing. You definitely want to go see uh, see a, a a good, sound theological doctor if you if you have anything oozing in your theology, and uh, basically a good, sound regimen of good biblical and Christ-centered doctrine and theology. Uh, like a good um, antibiotic should clear that right up. So if you if you're oozing, that's bad, not good. And then uh, our sermon review today is going to provide us with an opportunity to, you know, to reiterate and kind of reinforce the proper distinction of law and gospel. And uh, one of the things I like to do is I like to see what happens when other pastors get a hold of uh, products put out by uh, churches like Saddleback Church. And uh, Rick Warren, a year, year and a half ago, almost two years ago now, uh, came out with a series called The 40 Days of Love. The 40 Days of Love. And so uh, Pastor Chris Songson, one of the guys, just, again, he's a standby here at Fighting for the Faith for a Sermon Review because he generally just mangles the text. Uh, Chris Songson from South Hills Community Church in Corona, California, recently has taken his church through the 40 Days of Love. And uh, the reason I picked this particular sermon to review is specifically because uh, Chris does a, a really terrible job of confusing law and gospel, and, and I think it's a it's a great example of exactly what not to do. Now he does the gospel does come up in the sermon, but the problem is is that based on how he's treating the law, the gospel doesn't make any sense. Um, and in fact, it doesn't even connect whatsoever. And what he offers with the right hand. He quickly take, takes away with the left, and so I think this is a perfect example of a confusion of law and gospel sermon that will, I think, be uh, help you all kind of see the difference between the two. So without any further ado, now, um, we, I don't have any emergent uh, sound, uh, I don't have an emergent tr- trumpet fanfare segment kind of thing, but... Uh, Tony Jones you know, and the gang recently finished up. We we mentioned this on the program yesterday. A uh, a conference they called Theology After Google, and um, I want you to hear a portion of Tony Jones's intro to this conference that took place in Southern California. And him and Trip Fuller from the uh, Homebrewed uh, Theology blog. Uh, talk about why they why they're holding this conference and what's important about it. The way you should be listening, what you need to be listening for is that I think this supports my thesis that the uh, emergent church is far, far, far from dead. In fact, I think the way we need to think about the emergent church, um, 
think about imperial the imperial Japanese army during World War II. Um, those guys, uh, the, the Japanese army was infamous for their ability to dig in and survive bombardments uh, and basically make it so that there was no way in, in Hades that they were going down without a fight. In fact, it was very costly to uh, extricate the Japanese army from uh, islands that they had taken and were holding on to even defensively. I think we have to think of it, of the emergent church in this way. They're not going away. It's not like they're, they're going to say, oh, no, we've come under criticism. People have called us heretics. Oh, gasp. We should probably pack up our books and go home and become farmers. Yeah, that's not happening. That, <laughs> nope. That's not how this thing's going to go down. So uh, without any further ado, here is Tony Jones and Trip Fuller at the opening. They're opening shot at the just recently concluded theology after Google conference. And again, this is um, proof positive that the emergent church is far from dead. that Trip and I want to talk to you about right from the beginning. That's Trip Fuller. My name is Tony Jones, and uh, we're really excited that you have made a point to come to this, uh, this gathering uh, called Theology After Google. To begin with, here's what I'd like you to do. If you would, yeah. if you would trust me just for a moment to close your eyes... Uh, by the way, I need to warn you all here, uh, because we're not regulated by the uh, FCC, um, i got to give you a language warning. I will not be bleeping it out. I just want to warn you ahead of time. There's a, it, it's not really, really super bad language, but it's a little rougher than most people are used to on the radio. Just want to let you know. Okay, I want, we're going to do a thought experiment. I'd like you to close your eyes, and I'd like you to imagine that you went online... And you did a search in your area, wherever you live, and you looked at, at random, ten, the websites of 10 evangelical churches. And then you looked at the website of 10 progressive churches. Okay, now you can open your eyes. If you're anything like me, the, the result of this uh, thought experiment is that in the macrocosm, not necessarily the particular church you go to or whatever, but in the macrocosm, progressives tend to suck at social media and technology. And evangelicals tend to kick our ass at that. Testify. This event, this gathering, is about us starting to turn the corner on that. To recover the era and the time when people like... William Jennings Bryan were the populist, progressive leaders and voices in the United States. Somewhere along the line, we kind of lost the storyline a little bit. And one of the best, uh, in, in Christian Smith's latest book about what happens between high school and college with the faith of students, it's not very good for those of us who come from the mainline Christian tradition. There's a bigger loss of faith, of any ability to articulate 
uh, anything about God, about any kind of spiritual practices in those five years than in any other sphere of American religious life. There's the biggest loss among the mainline. Okay, uh, and hang on a second. He want to point something out, and that is, uh, if you listen carefully, what one of the things you notice is that Tony Jones here at this conference is making no bones about the fact that he considers himself to be in the greater progressive, liberal, mainline, denominational camp. He's speaking as one of them. Now, why is this important? Because all along, I have been claiming that the emergent church is nothing but liberalism 2.0. It's still liberalism. It's an upgrade in liberal software. There's some new mystical features uh, that you don't find in in your generic, regular, run-of-the-mill modernist liberalism. Postmodernist liberalism allows itself to have some spiritual dimension. Um, and But for the most part, this is just... Liberalism 2.0. And how is Tony Jones talking? As a progressive liberal. He's who is speaking to progressive liberals to convince them that it's time for them to get as good at social media and the Internet as evangelicals who he has already in this little in the course of this conversation you can tell the evangelicals are the bad guys and the progressives are the good guys, right? We continue. Writes in his latest book about why that happens into emerging adulthood. He says he thinks it's because of the success of mainline Christianity. That the story of personal responsibility and respect for others and openness and tolerance became at one with the American story writ large. And so I, I need to correct Tony Jones here. Here's the deal, Tony, here. Um, the uh, the uh, initial shot at progressive populist theology, um, it was an attempt to make Christianity palatable to the American culture or to Western civilization uh, modernist Western civilization as a whole. It's not that progressive liberals won by and that their ideas got adopted by the greater American or Western culture. I, I disagree with that because basically all they did was go along with the flow of the culture. They blended with the wallpaper, if you would. They didn't succeed in transforming the culture. They they successfully were transformed by modernist American culture. What was distinctive about the voice of progressives in the United States at one point has become less and less distinctive. Well, I think that a lot of us in the room would agree that right now is a great time for us to recover a distinctive voice and offer some kind of counter-narrative to the narratives that are being pushed in many forms of media. And what we're going to talk about in these three days is that what's available to us now in social media, for instance, it's easy and free. So it levels the playing field in a way that we don't have to start our own uh, preaching broadcast networks or radio networks or something like that. 
And this is part of a larger project that um, uh, Philip and Marjorie so um, so inspired the Ford Foundation to donate money for this project to rekindle the theological imagination of the church. <laughs> That's Trip Fuller, by the way. Funny guy. Um, oh man, Re- rekindle the imagine the theological imagination of the church. You just got to make this point. Uh, Jesus does not give us extra points uh, for theological imagination. Yeah, sorry. Just had to play that. Um, no, we're called to be faithful and to proclaim the, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We're not called to have theological imaginations. Sorry, it just it happens automatically when I say that word. And so I just want to point that out. But anyway, that's that's a slightly different topic. Continuing. So this is kind of like techno theology nerd fun time. So if you're a techno nerd, a theology nerd, or if you just feel cool hanging out with them with a glowing apple in your lap, you're, this is the perfect place for you to be. And our goal this week is to continue this project we started off on. And, um, and it first started off with a gathering of a bunch of progressive theologians. And they came here. We had we had a good time talking and talking, and problems came up, and Tony's going to say something about that when that gets hooked up. And then we had... Uh, a year ago... A year ago. Before you get to your little... I know. A year ago was the first of three scheduled meetings. And we here on this campus, we met with 40 of what would be considered... Uh, the leading voices of progressive theology, people who hold tenure and endowed chairs at places like Yale and Vanderbilt and Emory and GTU. And we sat in a room for three days talking about how we could develop a more populist theology. And I will say that from where I sat, we were... Okay, now listen carefully. This is important. Don't miss this thing. For three days, they sat in a room, emergent leaders, with the brightest stars of progressive, think liberal, theology, trying to figure out how they can create a more populous theology. Does this sound like Tony Jones, Doug Paget, and the emergent church guys are going away anytime soon to you? It doesn't sound like they're going away anytime soon to me. It sounds to me like what they're trying to do is stir up a revolution. I was continually frustrated with the lack of interest and imagination at doing anything that really had impact outside the walls of the academy. By the way, I share that same frustration with some of the academic academy walls within Lutheranism, but that's a different story. And and then we had the uh, heads of a bunch of mainline denominations here, and and they uh, <laughs> listen to what Tripp just said. We had the heads of a lot of mainline denominations here. Who who was Trip Fuller and uh, Tony Jones meeting with? Heads 
of mainline denominations. You know what's going on because their their ministers and their lay people tell them, and they try to figure it out. And it was just clear that that was one of the big problems in the room. So big, they made sure that we didn't record any of it or videotape it. And so what we thought of coming out of that, this third conference was coming, and it was supposed to be seminary presidents and deans. And we started having some frustrations, and we were like, what are we? (laughs) The third meeting was with whom? Seminary presidents and deans? Does this sound like the um, the actions of a dying movement to you? What are we going to do? Can we get them all here? Seminaries are having trouble with money because of the economic crisis. And all that stuff's going on. And I had this weird idea that with Tony and he and I were talking. And then I got on a phone call with Spencer Burke. And I said, you know what was kind of funny at these events is theologians, theology nerds, they can nail Gutenberg theology after the Holocaust. You'd think that would be hard to do theologically, but there's millions of books on post-Holocaust theology. But then you throw Google in the room, and it's like cockroaches and the lights on. We know because we tried to find textbooks for for our class um, that we've been doing this semester called Theology After Google. So we decided that it would be good to make this kind of like the third event. But the theology after Google, seminary, deans, provosts, and presidents. Because from now on, you all, all of us in this room, we're the seminary presidents and the deans and the provosts and the tenured faculty. That's the way it's going. Okay, The future of the Christian faith and how we're going to articulate it is going to be in the hands of everybody. In the same way that the PhDs from Oxford and Cambridge who used to get to write the encyclopedias have been dethroned. And now everybody in the world gets to contribute to the largest encyclopedia that's ever been assembled. That's going to be the same thing in our sphere of interest and influence, and that's theology and church leadership. And so we hope that we can foster a conversation here over these days that will help us all move into that new territory. This does not sound like the death throes of the emergent church to me. This sounds like, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, this sounds like Tony Jones and Trip Fuller recruiting a brand new generation of soldiers who are going to take territory, and Trip Fuller and uh, Tony Jones are generals conveying the new message, uh, to basically conveying their battle plan, if you would, uh, to the up-and-coming new soldiers of this progressive revolution, this populist progressive revolution. Emergent church dying? I don't think so. I <laughs> We haven't seen nothing yet. These guys are meeting with heads of uh, mainline denominations, heads of uh, seminaries and uh, faculty and, and Bible colleges, and uh, and top theologians, yeah, these guys ain't going away anytime soon. These guys sound like they're planning a spring offensive rather than figuring out how to pack their bags and go away 
and disappear off into the past as, you know, just another one of those passing fads, the emergent church, you know, the, oh, the glory days, you know. If that's what you think is happening with the emergent church, you do not understand this thing. And I think that what I just played should be a wake-up call for everybody. This thing ain't going away any time soon. All right, we are up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. You out there! I'm supposed to experience the presence of God if you're using a jackhammer! Shut up! Don't feel sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next, when you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of Scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no, no, no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of Scripture. Judas, 
hung him himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself. Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hung himself. Hung himself. Hung himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide. What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death. What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture. Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention, and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was, Judas hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like His. This is rubbish. A complete waste of my time. I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something. If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way. Just open the Bible and read it. Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website... PirateChristianRadio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit PirateChristianRadio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. I don't automatically agree with the bigwigs that say the emergent church is dead, dying, or gone. Call me skeptical. All right, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that we depend upon your financial partnership with us in order to continue to bring this program to you. And the way you join us or partner with us financially is to visit our website, www.fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, there are two friendly yellow buttons right there on the homepage. One of them says, join our crew. Sounds ominous, doesn't it? And the other one says, donate. Now, on the join our crew button, that, that's the one I would like you to consider 
clicking on and filling everything out. Why? When you join our crew, you're signing up. It's a mere $6.95 a month. That's like nothing. It ain't nothing. It's hardly anything at all. $6.95 a month. Yeah, I've got college kids that can afford that, even though it, they might have to sacrifice a box of macaroni and cheese to do so, or a week's supply of macaroni and cheese. By the way, I think that's what six ninety five is a week's supply of macaroni and cheese for college students. Just want to let you know that. Um, <laughs> anyway, it's six dollars and ninety five cents a month, and our, first, our basically our big financial goal here is to get to a thousand of our listeners who've joined our crew. And uh, when you join, also you get access to our pirate cove. Want to let you know that. Growing the treasure trove of theological resources. Getting ready, by the way, to put the audio up from uh, uh, three webinars uh, in the Cove, hopefully by the end of this week. Uh, working on the, the production work on that right now. Kind of changing how I'm doing that, too. We'll, we'll talk about that later. Anyway, you get access to our Cove. And, of course, if you'd like to fill in the amount as to how much you'd like to uh, contribute to our cause, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button. It allows you to fill in. Uh, the the amount that you would like to contribute to our subversive radio gospel cause, if you would, and uh, and that's all done securely. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay. Um, this next segment will run a little bit long, which means, of course, we, you know, we'll do our sermon review uh, partway through hour number two today. But I, I want to do some Brian McLaren work. When the moon is in the step of high, That's our theme music for Brian McLaren. Gotta get the high note. All right. <laughs> I just think that's the most appropriate music for Brian McLaren. <sighs> okay. Unfortunately, this is going to be something we're going to have to deal with uh, for quite a while here at Fighting for the Faith. We're working our way through the uh, questions that uh, you know he's that he's posted. But I think it's important that we provide sound examples from the scriptures as to why McLaren's new kind of Christianity ain't Christianity at all. Okay. And in the scriptures, okay, uh, in fact, if you have your Bibles, open with me to uh, Romans chapter one. I want to read a section of scripture for you before we dive into this to help you kind of understand what is going on here. Okay. Um, here we go. Um, Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 16. I'll be reading from the ESV, which I lovingly refer to as the English Sanctified Version. And here's what it says. It says, I, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that's in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Okay? So what we're seeing here with Brian McLaren, you know, it, it, listen, it's not hard for somebody who has a, a pretty decent knowledge of the scriptures to see through the lies that Brian McLaren is telling in his new book, A New Kind of Christianity. The problem is, is that uh, people who have a decent working knowledge of the scriptures and sound biblical doctrine and sound Christian theology has grown less and less as an overall percentage of the, of the visible Christian population. So as a result of it, there's a lot of people who attend churches who are not catechized. There's a whole lot of people who are attending churches, and I don't care what denomination you, that they're in. It, it, this, is not, this is not something that just can be pinned on any one particular movement. Okay, that's The nature of the beast here is, is that somehow catechesis and instruction in sound biblical doctrine and helping people to have a good working understanding of the scripture has fallen by the wayside. Now, we see it more predominant in churches that follow a seeker-driven and purpose-driven model uh, because you literally have the inmates running the asylum there. That's probably the best way I can put it. And as a result of it, there's not a, you know, seeker-driven churches are not known for their in-depth biblical teaching, but that's not just a, a, an issue with seeker-driven churches. It's across the board in many cases. So as a result of it, you know, here we've got probably one of the most dangerous heretical books to be published in a century. That's probably the best way I can put it. In fact, in all of church history, this one stands out probably in the top five, just in my book, just in my way of thinking. And at this point, the visible Christian church is ill-equipped, poorly equipped to be able to refute them uh, to refute him because they don't have a good working knowledge of the scriptures. So, it well, that's that's just the nature of the of the fight, but we're going to take a look at it. Now, when, let me give you an example of something that again, if you just know a little bit about the Bible, you can just ridic- you can you can shoot this guy down so quick that it, you know, it's it's not even funny. It's like I said, shooting fish in a barrel. Uh, but uh, in uh, in the chapter entitled, What is the Overarching Storyline of the Bible? Starting at page 41, I'm going to do a little bit of reading for you, and I'm going to show you how Brian McLaren is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. He's suppressing the truth. This is exactly what he's up to, and it's not it's not hard to uncover at all. Uh, let me read McLaren. He, he writes, Coming back to our narrative diagram, I believe the Christian religion in the West is as it habitually read the bible has as it habitually read the bible backwards through the lens of later christians largely lost track of the frontward story of abraham of adam abraham moses and so on within which jesus had emerged it unwittingly traded in its true heritage through jesus from judaism for an alien heritage drawn from greek philosophy and roman politics by the way he does not know greek philosophy you can't you cannot make these claims. <laughs> oh, this is silly. Anyway, let me continue. Uh, through this profound and unconscious syncretism or mixing of sources, biblical data was reframed by the Greco-Roman narrative, 
which could be rendered like this, a platonic ideal of being fallen to the cave of illusion, Aristotelian real slashing becoming salvation uh, to the platonic ideal or uh, damnation into Greek Hades. In this way, the Greco-Roman mind transforms the Garden of Eden from its original earthly stuff into into a transcendent platonic ideal. It is no longer a good Jewish garden. It's a perfect platonic Greco-Roman garden. In this perfect platonic garden, nothing ever changes because in perfection, uh, change can only be for the worse. This changeless means that the platonic Eden is a state, not a story, a state of perfect innocence framed this way. The fall into sin, it turns out, isn't simply a move from innocence to experience or even obedience to disobedience as Adam and Eve disobeyed. They don't eat the fruit of the tree. Uh, They don't eat from that tree rule that maintains them in their state of innocent perfection. They plunge from state to story, from being into becoming from Plato's world into Aristotle's world and from the absolute light of the day into the relative darkness of a cave to conjure up Plato's most famous parable. By the way, he's basically just laying that over the text. It's not there at all. Okay. Um, Page 42. Now, the the God of this Greco-Roman version of the Bible bears... Our Bible story, biblical story bears a strange similarity in many ways to Zeus, Jupiter for the Romans, but we will name him Theos. The Greco-Roman god Theos, I suggest, is a far different deity than the Jewish Elohim of Genesis 1 or the Lord Yahweh, referring to the unspeakable name of the creator in Genesis 2 and 12, not to mention Abba, whom Jesus prayed as a as a good uh, as a good no make that perfect platonic god theos loves spirit state and being and hates matter story and becoming since once again the latter involves change and the only way to change or move from perfection is downward into decay in fact as soon as something drops out of the state of perfection theos is possessed by a pure and irresistible urge to destroy or to make suffer <sighs> So what McLaren basically is claiming that there isn't a fall, uh, that, that somehow this idea of a fall into sin and disobedience against God and salvation or whatever is a platonic overlay or a Greco-Roman overlay. And uh, he's naming that God, the God who wants to condemn and destroy, he's naming him Theos as opposed to the loving, benevolent father, you know, long-suffering father God of Genesis 1, 2, and 12. His name is Elohim. Okay. Well, if you know your Bible, certainly if you don't, even if you don't follow with me, Genesis chapter 6. Okay. I'm going to point something out to you here. Again, this is just, it's like shooting fish in a barrel it's that bad okay here's the thing is that there's not a lot of people who uh, have taken the time to really know their scriptures because they haven't been taught th- their scriptures as a result of it they're, they're, so they're they might actually think mclaren's argument has some merit to it in fact i would hate to say i hate to say it but i think there's a lot of people who think that his argument has some merit in it but let's take a look at something here in genesis chapter six we uh, basically get the introduction to the entire flood narrative okay and I happen to know Hebrew. Um, why? Well, I've, I have a degree in religious studies and biblical languages. Okay. 
Let me help you out here. Okay, here we go. Verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. The Lord said, quote, by the way, see, if you look in your Bible, it says Lord, L-O-R-D. Okay. Whenever you see in your Bible, in the Old Testament, the word Lord all capitalized like that, what that's referring to in the Hebrew, you can count on it, is uh, that in the Hebrew, what you have is the Hebrew name Yahweh mentioned. Okay. In fact, you could say, then Yahweh said, quote, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh and his day shall be 120 years. Okay. Now, let me fast forward a little bit here in the story, and uh, we'll look at uh, verse 5, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord, that's Yahweh, saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, or you can say only evil all of the time. Does this sound like uh, humanity has suffered a fall into sin to you guys? Only six chapters? I mean, this is three chapters after the, uh, um, you know, the the Genesis uh, account of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And you have Yahweh, this loving, benevolent God, okay, saying that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all of the time. And Yahweh was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So you have Yahweh. So who's supposed to be in... in this is different than Theos, right? But let me, it gets worse for uh, Brian McLaren, by the way. Okay. Let's move forward to verse 11 in the narrative. Are you ready for this? This is the real kicker. Now, the earth was corrupt in Elohim's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And Elohim saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And Elohim said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Yeah, did you catch the part there about, okay. Now, the earth was corrupt in Elohim's sight. That's what the Hebrew says. And the earth was filled with violence. And Elohim saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. And Elohim said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. So here's the problem. McLaren is basically constructing, I should basically put it this way, he's deconstructing Christianity by making this claim that this idea that God destroys, punishes, has wrath, that these are characteristics of, of Zeus, not the benevolent, loving, kind, fatherly God of the, uh, the otherwise known as Elohim. The problem is, is that if you know Hebrew, in Genesis 6, you have Elohim saying that he's going to destroy the earth because man is corrupt and evil. 
And that's what it says in the text. It says Elohim. In other words, what McLaren is doing is that he is selectively picking and choosing, cherry-picking, if you would, the passages of Scripture that he likes uh, to construct this new meta-narrative that he's calling his new kind of Christianity and deconstructing the biblical narrative and uh, the basically the biblical meta-narrative that has been, been, been a part of Christianity from the beginning. And by claiming that it's a foreign Greco-Roman narrative, which it isn't, and that, and that that deity is really the false deity, Theos. But here in the text, we have Elohim saying he's going to destroy the earth, much the way he's described the behavior of <gasps> Theos. But, but here's the problem. Uh, this narrative regarding Elohim destroying the earth in the flood occurs long, 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 really long time before the Greco-Roman world came into prominence, maybe even existence. In other words, Brian McLaren, he be suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. All right, moving along. This is what we didn't get to last week. Um, Brian McLaren, uh, he's uh, question number four and question number five. Uh, Question number four from his book is called The uh, Jesus Question. And uh, this is uh, the audio from his video that appears at the ooze.tv. And uh, this is The Jesus Question. And I want you to listen very carefully. I'm going to point some things out here. And this kind of plays into some of the stuff that we've talked about already here so far. So uh, here's Brian McLaren. Oh, by the way, the thing you want to be really listening for is how he's selective in his in picking the things he likes about Jesus and ignoring the rest of the data. Question number four. The Jesus question. Who is Jesus? Why is he important? Now, you really go head-to-head with your critics on this one. Well, you know, I'm, I'm like you. I'm not a fighter, but this is an issue that I think is so important that uh, I, I want to present people with a choice. It seems to me that a lot of my critics, what they've done is they've taken an interpretation of the Jesus of the second coming, and they have put that Jesus in the center. And then they've taken the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they first sort of pushed him away from the table, they pushed him out of the room, and then they've locked the door. Okay, now I want to point something out here. Part of what McLaren is saying here is spot on. Why am I saying that? Because there is a sector of, of, of evangelicalism, the legalism wing, if you would, of evangelicalism that has done exactly that. They talk exclusively of the anger and the wrath and the coming punishment of God. And nary do you ever hear a word of uh, the Jesus' Jesus's death on the cross for our sins. We don't hear the gospel. So in some, there, there, this critique that he's giving here, there's some validity to it. The problem is, is that this, it's, it's, it's a caricature. Not all of Christianity really is this way at all. And he's, as a result of it, what he's done is he's taken the extreme legalistic view and somehow made that the norm. And that isn't the norm. That isn't the center of Christian theology at all. 
We continue. So you're really inviting us to return to the Jesus of the gospel. I want to bring the Jesus of the gospels back to the table and let him be the center. Okay, now I want to point something out here. The Jesus of the gospels is not a contradiction from the Jesus revealed in the Old Testament. You're saying, well, Jesus is revealed in the Old Testament. Jesus is Yahweh in human flesh. He's Elohim in human flesh. That's who Jesus is. Plain and simple. Okay. So you can't, you can't compartmentalize. And this is kind of the, one of the issues here. Now, l- let's talk about each and every one of us for a minute. Okay. All of us have good days and all of us have bad days. Okay. Now, I'm not saying this is true about Jesus, but work with me for a second. Okay. So those of you who only hung around Chris when Chris uh, had, was having a quote, good day. I might be jovial, joking, kind of fun to be with or whatever. Uh, and you would think, wow, I just love, I love being around Chris when, you know, cause he's just this fun loving guy or whatever. Well, but then what happens is, is that I have bad days too. I have days when I'm stressed out, when I wake up on the wrong side of the bed, days that I'm grumpy, when I'm snippy, when I am just a, a bear to be around, right? So if you, your only exposure to me was on the days when I was having a good day and you never saw the bad day, you'd be shocked when you saw that I was having a bad day and that I'm capable of being grumpy or whatever. Well, it doesn't, if those of us who've lived on the planet long enough know that's how all of us are because of sin. So here's the deal, okay? You can't only sample one segment of my life and draw a conclusion as to what my entire character is like. Same thing with Jesus. If you, you can't take only a piece of, G, of Jesus's overall narrative and try to basically say this is exclusively how Jesus is and we're going to suppress the rest of the data. Okay. What we learn about Jesus is that he is the God of the Old Testament. He's the God who ordered the flood. He's the God who caused the flood to happen. He's the God who punishes. And he's also the God who offers mercy and forgiveness. And these themes of mercy and forgiveness are throughout all of the Old Testament. And so what's happening here is that McLaren, he likes the loving, kind God who is slow to anger, slow to punish, merciful, kind and forgiveness and forgiving. But he doesn't like the fact that God also is just and that he has a he has an absolute right upon us morally and uh when we and he has the right to punish us for our sins and god does punish us for our sins and we do see god's wrath and so the thing is is that if we're if we have if we're going to get a correct picture of jesus we have to look at all of the data you can't suppress one segment because you like another Okay, so on the one hand, where the legalists get it wrong is that they are constantly harping on the wrath and the anger and the and the God is going to squash you like a little bug. And, you know, Okay, but you never hear of the gospel from these people. McLaren's making the opposite error. He's making the exact opposite error. He's trumpeting up the gospel and suppressing God's judgment and his wrath. As a result, as a result of it, we're getting a distorted view of Jesus from McLaren. But it's just as distorted as the picture that we get from the legalists of only the wrathful God. You see what I'm saying? We continue. 
Why do you think it's so important to focus on the first coming Jesus? Well, look, the first coming Jesus didn't kill anybody. He was a man of peace. He didn't torture anybody. He was tortured. The first coming Jesus didn't reject anybody. He was rejected. He, he didn't exclude anybody. He was excluded. He was a Jesus who presented. Jesus didn't exclude, any, exclude anybody. Huh. We'll talk about that in a second. Presented to us the image of God as one who loves us, who forgives us, who accepts us where we are. And if we allow that picture of Jesus and of God to be marginalized, it increases the likelihood that the Christian faith will be a faith that kills and tortures and rejects and excludes. Oh, what a preposterous claim. <laughs> okay. Um, are there a bunch of Christian terrorists out there that I don't know about? So here's his big concern, if that if we, uh, if we don't uh, trump up God's love and kindness and forgiveness, then the Christianity will become a religion that kills, tortures, rejects, and excludes. Now, this is an interesting list, by the way. Kills, tortures, rejects, excludes. Um, let's see here. By the way, um, does the Christian religion teach us to kill people in the name of the Lord because they are pagans? No, it doesn't. In fact, it's the God of the Old Testament who says, Thou shalt not murder. Right? Okay. Does Jesus tell us to go out and torture those who don't believe the way we do? No, he doesn't. He says, Go out and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in my name to all nations. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins, right? Now, this is kind of interesting. Notice in the list here we got killing, torturing, and then get this, rejecting and excluding. How did those get in there? Um, hang on, I want to, uh, let's listen a little bit more. And, uh... and the fact is we see an awful lot of that going on. We've seen it in our history, and in sad ways we see it going on still today. So for me, this comes to the core of our faith, and it's very literally a matter of life and death. So who do you see Jesus as? Well, I think Jesus is so many things, but what I do in this section of the book is I bring us to the Gospel of John. Mm. And John begins by describing Jesus as the Word of God. Okay, the Gospel of John. Let's take a look at the Gospel of John. If you have your Bible, let's go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Since I mean, McLaren says he likes the picture that the... John creates of Jesus. Let's see here. Um, okay. You ready? John chapter 8. We're going to start at verse 12. I will be reading from the English Sanctified Version. Verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk, walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, well, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I 
come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said again to them, I am going I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he said, where I'm going, you cannot come. He said, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Sounds like Jesus is excluding to me. Does it? Does, does that sound like he's excluding to you too? I mean, saying to people that they're going to die in their sins, they can't come where he's coming. In fact, basically, and by the way, it, where it says, "If you not believe that I am," what's Jesus making reference there to? He's basically claiming to be the Yahweh of the Old Testament. How? Well, look at Gen- Exodus chapter three, the burning bush. Who shall I say sent me? I am. Tell him my name is I am. That's what Jesus is saying about himself. Okay. And he says, you cannot follow me. You will die in your sins. Sounds like Jesus, from the Gospel of John of all places, is excluding some. Hmm. By the way, what's the problem with McLaren? He's suppressing data. He's suppressing the truth. He's creating a distorted view of Jesus. I believe Jesus, in the truest and fullest sense, is the Word of God. He's the one who makes God known to us. And remember in the book of Genesis when it begins, in the the beginning, God created, the Word of God creates. And I believe, as the Word of God, Jesus is creating a new humanity, a new future for our lives and for the human race. So not done even yet. Not done even yet. So you're saying Jesus is the Word of God. Most of us think of the Bible as mm-hmm. the Word of God. Well, actually, something I talk about in the book, and I think it's pretty important. Mm-hmm. Let's take this Bible and say, okay, this part represents the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And let's say this part represents the epistles and the rest of the New Testament. And then let's say the center represents the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that present Jesus. So another way you could say it, this covers the Old Testament, this covers the New Testament, and the spine is Jesus. Mm -hmm. That gives us a couple different ways to read the Bible. And a lot of people have been taught to read the Bible flat. Mm -hmm. So the whole Bible is the same. It's like a constitution. Uh, a, a verse from the Old Testament, a verse from the Gospels, a verse from the book of Jude, they all have exactly the same value. Okay, by the way, the idea is, is that all of the Bible is the Word of God. It is inspired and true. He's knocking that. By the way, that'll be what we'll be talking about on Saturday on our webinar on March 20th at noon Eastern um, on uh, basically you know, the authority of Scripture, Constitution or Library. We'll be talking about this on Saturday. 
Other people read the Bible like this. The Old Testament is primary because it sets up all the boundary conditions. And then Jesus and the New Testament basically are solution to a bunch of issues from the Old Testament, but it really makes the Old Testament primary. Other people read the Bible like this. You could say, you know, the Old Testament is good, Jesus is great, but the Apostle Paul, he's the one. And you really pay attention, especially to Paul's writings. And so that becomes the pinnacle of the Bible. My, I don't know anybody who does that. Proposal. To say that Jesus is the Word of God is to say that we read the Bible like this. The Old Testament. Now he's put the spine up. So basically, we read the Old Testament. Every we read everything through Jesus. Testament scriptures. The thing is, is that if you do that, you can't come to the conclusions he does. Lead us to Jesus. The New Testament scriptures follow out from Jesus. So the scriptures bear witness to Jesus as the Word of God. The highest revelation of God, I'm suggesting, comes to us not in pages, but in a person. Not in words. What doublespeak? The highest revelation of God doesn't come to us in pages, but in a person. Okay, just a real quick question. Where is the place that you can find the teachings of Jesus correctly and accurately recorded for us in the pages of the Gospels. This is ridiculous. Words on paper, but in the word of God made flesh. And it brings it to life. Uh, And to me, it's so much more hopeful, so much more life-giving. That not only sets Jesus in a radically different position for me, but so alive. Mm -hmm. To me... Do these guys talk to Jesus directly? Do they have extra biblical revelation about Jesus? Again, what's going on here is a uh, suppression of the total picture of Jesus. They're cherry-picking the passages they like about Jesus, and they're basically creating a distorted view of him. And what's that distorted view of Jesus? Well, their Jesus is Gandhi with a beard. I mean, that's their Jesus. It's Gandhi with a beard. All right, we're up on our second break. When we come back, we will continue with this. We'll get to uh, question number five here, uh, the the uh, the gospel uh, question, and uh, and and move out from there to our sermon review. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway.
Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk to you about auto insurance. As the father of two teenage drivers, I know how expensive auto insurance can be. But as expensive as auto insurance is, it's nothing compared to the cost of not having it when you need it. That's why I'm excited to have Allstate Insurance as one of Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertisers. Did you know that drivers who switched to Allstate saved an average of $396 per year compared to what they were paying other companies? Now, I don't know about you, but I think $396 is a lot of money in these tough economic times. Why don't you give Allstate a call and see how much they can save you? You can reach them toll-free at 877-246-1511. Again, that's 877-246-1511. The good folks at Allstate will be happy to give you a free quote over the phone. And remember, you're in good hands with Allstate. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. All right, we're back. Well into hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. I want to do one more Brian McLaren thing before we get to our sermon review today. It's kind of like, you know, taking a Band-Aid off on your arm. You don't have all the hair there. you got to rip it off real quick. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to do here. Kind of emergent, you know, get it off quick. All right, continuing with Brian McLaren, here is uh, question number five, the gospel question, which is, I think, a very important one uh, to be listening to when it comes to Brian McLaren. Why? Because the Apostle Paul warns us in Galatians chapter 1, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than the one already preached, let him be anathema, eternally condemned. And so this is one of those bellwether questions. If he's not bringing us the biblical gospel, then we've got a big problem. And what is the biblical gospel? Well, the summary of the gospel itself is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Apostle Paul specifically mentions that he is reminding the Corinthian church what the gospel is that he preached to them. Here's what it says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 1, Paul writing, 
Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved. Okay? Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Okay? That's the the gospel in a nutshell. It's the proclamation, as Jesus says in Luke chapter 24, of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. Now, this is important. Let me let me show you this to you real quick. Uh, Luke 24. I just referenced it, but I want to point a couple of things out to you. Okay? Uh, Luke 24, verses um, 46, 47, 48. It says, And Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Okay. Now, McLaren, if you've been keeping up with his books, is trying to create this new thing. It's called the gospel of the kingdom of God. And what is the gospel of the kingdom of God? Well, it's apparently this good news that God is recreating everything and including everybody in it. It's a different gospel. Okay. And let me let me see if I can pull, if I can find this really quick here. Um, let's see here. I want to see if I can find this. Um, yeah, hang on. Is it Horn of Salvation? Um, yeah, here we go. <laughs> Something I just want to point out. Um, let me see if I can find uh, here. Baptism, repentance, and okay, got real quick. Um, Luke chapter one. I just want to point this out to you. Um, Luke chapter one. Um, interesting stuff. Blessed be the uh, verse sixty-eight. By the way, uh, talking about John the Baptist. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. And to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, this is referring to John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Okay, forgiveness of their sins. McLaren has completely retooled everything to the point where what's missing? Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. In McLaren's new meta-narrative, there isn't a fall. There isn't even sin. It's just, you know, a bunch of mistakes by clumsy people who are still growing and heading towards something great. But let's continue. Here's McLaren talking about the gospel. We're up to question number five. The gospel question. What is the gospel? Now, you're not going to mess with that, are you? Well, actually, here's the problem. I think our understanding of the gospel is about 180 degrees off. Okay, 180 degrees off means that it's wrong. If you're 180 degrees off, you're going the wrong way. 
McLaren, in the kindest, most whimsical way, has basically said that our understanding of the gospel is false. For most of us, the gospel is about going up. How do we escape this world and go to heaven? Uh, No, the gospel is about the forgiveness of sins won by Jesus Christ on the cross. Notice the mischaracterization. It's all about upward mobility, even in a lot of our prosperity churches. How do we move up in life? How do we move up in spirituality? I think we got it wrong. Yeah. Well, at least he's honest. But wait a minute, we've got the book of Romans. <laughs> it feels like it says something else. Actually, that's one of the things I talk about in the book. Uh, I think the book of Romans is the wrong place to go to get a definition of the gospel. I think we have to get a definition of the gospel from Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's where he's defining the gospel. But we have to see what the book of Romans is really about. Yeah. Okay, now listen carefully. So where do you go with it? Well, I think the book of Romans isn't defining the gospel. It's solving a problem created by the gospel. Okay, keep this in mind. The book of Romans is not written to solve a problem. Not at all. <clears throat> Let me do a little bit of work here. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Okay. Let's just listen in. Okay. Paul. A servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all of the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul's not writing this letter because of um, a problem that's being solved. Um, Not at all. In fact, looking at one particular commentary, um, let's see here. Um, uh, Let me see. Let's take a look at what this has to say about it. Study for notes for the... uh, for the uh, the occasion, by the way, the occasion uh, for the uh, for Paul's letter to the Romans. One commentary says this quote: When Paul wrote this letter, he was probably at Corinth on his third missionary journey. His work in the Eastern Mediterranean was almost finished, and uh, and he greatly desired to visit the Roman church. At this time, however, he could not go to Rome because he felt that he must personally deliver the collection taken among the Gentile churches 
for the poverty-stricken Christians of Jerusalem. So instead of going to Rome, he sent a letter to prepare the Christians there for his intended visit in connection with a mission to Spain. For many years, Paul had wanted to visit Rome to minister there, and this letter served as a careful and systematic theological introduction to that hope for uh, hoped-for personal ministry, since he was not acqu- acquainted directly with the Roman Church, he says little about its problems. Mm-hmm. The purpose of Paul's letter to the Romans wasn't to solve a problem. It was to prepare the way. Basically, it's a systematic theological introduction that he thought would help pave the way for his intended missionary trip to Spain. And he wanted to visit the Church of Rome there. Okay. So we've got a problem here. Uh, McLaren's um, telling us something about the Book of Romans that ain't true. The gospel is the message of the kingdom of God. And the message of the kingdom of Listen carefully. God is a message of reconciliation, calling all people together into one unified new humanity. Mm. Well, when you... Really, the message of the kingdom of God is God calling all people into one new new humanity. No, that's not the gospel at all. Bring Jews and Gentiles together. You've got to go back and say, well, how do we integrate this with what we know of Judaism, which was all about one special unique people. And so the book of Romans isn't defining the gospel. Jesus does that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The book of... Jesus is the one who said, go proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. That's what he said. That's what Jesus said. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The apostles, they proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name uh, to all nations. That's what the book of Acts is about, all about them doing that. Paul defines the gospel as Christ died for our sins and rose again. And he claims that he didn't get this gospel from any human being, but that he got it from Jesus Christ himself. Notice McLaren is basically, he he wants to get away from repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So he's created this, this false narrative about why Romans was written, so that he can get away from the gospel that's preached so clearly in the opening chapters of the book of Romans. Romans is showing how we bring Jew and Gentile, people of all different cultures and backgrounds, how we bring them together in the gospel. Where if you're looking for a gospel that goes up, somebody's got to win, somebody's got to lose. It's That's not right. Integration. It's about who's who's going up and who's left behind, you see. Well, now, but, what, what are you proposing? Well, if the gospel is actually about the kingdom of God coming to earth, it's all about downward mobility, ah. see. It's about God coming down to us in Christ. Remember in the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And um, so all of the movement is that way. Even when you come to the book of Revelation, the movement at the end of the Bible is downward. Remember the New Jerusalem. Yeah, but the New Jerusalem comes down only after the dead are raised, the books are opened, people are thrown into the lake of fire. You're kind of missing that whole part there. Comes down. The dwelling place of God is with people. Agreed. After the judgment, and some are sent to hell. 
I mean, this is a completely different understanding of the gospel than so many of us were taught and, and so many of us assume. And uh, that's because this is not the biblical gospel you're preaching, Brian. That's why I think this question is so important. If we open up the question, what is the gospel, we have the possibility of a new kind of Christianity. Mm -hmm. So the good news is? The good news is the kingdom of God is at hand. It's available. We can reach out and touch it. Of course, that raises the question, what does the kingdom of God mean? And that's why it gets so exciting when we go back to the scriptures with that question in mind. So we start to get our heads out of the clouds and our feet on the ground. Exactly right. We get down into the mess and the grit and the realities of this. Uh, but then we've got this little thorny passage here uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Hang on a second here. Um, <clears throat> verse 50, um, I start off with, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Yeah, you get the feeling that Brian McLaren's uh, new gospel based upon his interpretation of what he thinks the kingdom of God is ain't what the Bible teaches about it. <clears throat> yeah, you probably should be thinking that. All right, we're going to switch gears here and we're going to dive into our sermon review. Ready? The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. Now, today's sermon, obviously, you can tell by the music, is going to fall into the either bad or ugly category. Now, the reason I've chosen it is because it, it really, it's a bad sermon. It's really ugly in the way it handles law and gospel. So much so that it really gives a good counterbalance to it showing as to why you don't want to mess the two up. The sermon itself comes to us via Chris Songson at South Hills Community Church in Corona, California, a purpose-driven, seeker-driven church. Uh, Chris Songson, I think, moonlights as a uh, motivational speaker. And... Uh, He's, we've featured him before here at Fighting for the Faith. He, you can consider him a staple. Now, the, re, the, the sermon itself, funny enough, is uh, part of a prepackaged deal purchased from Saddleback from their 40 Days of Love. And um, it's always interesting to me to see what happens when uh, Saddleback's products or these seeker-driven pre-packaged sermon series uh, campaign, church-wide campaigns hit the uh, these churches and uh, what, end up, what ends up happening with them. I think part of that's what's going on here. Now, let me kill the music here. Okay, Talking about proper distinction of law and gospel actually requires us to spend a little bit, bit, bit of time in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, if you would. Okay? In fact, if you have your Bible, follow along Romans chapter 3. And this is kind of where we get some groundbreaking stuff regarding the proper distinction of law and gospel. Uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 1, it says, what advantage, uh, what, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Well, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That would be God's word. Well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Well, by no means. Let God be true, 
though everyone else were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you judge. But if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Well, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil uh, that good may come, as some slanderously charge us with saying? Well, their condemnation is just. So what then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the judgment of of the law for everybody, Jew and Greek alike. None righteous, no, not one. Everyone destroyed by the law. Got it? No one's righteous, not even one. Okay? Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, you can even say shut up, and the whole world will be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin." Now, one of the things I do from time to time as I'm reading this passage, uh, the word justified, hang on a second, let me pull this up here, make sure that I've got the correct Greek thing going on here. Uh, For by works of the law, no human will be justified. Um, uh, Basically, dikio is the Greek uh, verb there, and it means to pronounce or to be declared to be righteous, okay? Not perfect, but righteous, okay? Slightly different, similar concept, but actually different in in quality here. So when you read the word justified, what you can do, for by works of the law, no human will be declared righteous in God's sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So how many people are going to be declared righteous in God's sight through the law? None. Not anybody. No one is going to be declared righteous in God's sight through the law. What is the law then? This is important. What is the law? The law is summarized in the Ten Commandments and even further summarized in love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. The law commands us to love God and love our neighbor. So you can literally say, By the way, you can change this out if you want to. This will be correct. For by works of the law, for by loving God and loving neighbor, no human will be justified or declared righteous in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The purpose of the law is to show us our sin. But now the righteousness of God has has been manifested apart from the law, apart from the command to love God and to love neighbor. 
although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace or declared righteous by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the one who justifies or declares righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So are we saved by our keeping of the law? Remember, the law is summarized as love God and love neighbor. Are we declared righteous in God's sight? Are we saved by keeping the law, love God and love neighbor? No, not one single person will be declared righteous in God's sight by loving God or loving neighbor. That's the law. Now, Galatians has a pretty strong way of putting it. Let me see if I can find this real quick. Uh, let's see, Galatians chapter 2. Um, yeah, um, I'm going to start at verse 17, although I really recommend if you if this is new territory for you or if you'd like to review it, read all of the book of Galatians, okay? Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 17. Verse 21 is the one I want to get to, but I want to keep it in context. But if our endeavor to be justified or declared righteous in Christ, uh, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Well, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to Christ, uh, live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the, uh, in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, if righteousness were through loving God and loving others, then Christ died for no purpose. You see, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by loving God or loving neighbor. With that in mind, with these passages fresh in our ears, if you would, let's listen to Pastor Chris Songson's first sermon in the 40 Days of Love series that was recently concluded at South Hills Community Church in Corona, California. It is so cool to see you here. I want you to grab your outline as we kick off this brand new series called 40 Days of Love. It is going to be an exciting series, and we are going to tackle this issue called love we are going to learn uh, how to love more, how to love better, how to love in the way that God would want us to love. And here's the cool thing. I promise you this, that if you will be here for the next 40 days, literally, don't leave for 40 more days. We're going to come bring food in. No, um, 
But for the next 40 days, you'll be here on the weekends. I promise you, you'll be here if you'll get involved in a small group, as Pastor Billy mentioned. Obviously, by the video, it makes a huge difference. If you'll be in small groups uh, and you'll be here each week, I promise you that your relationships will be healthier. Your spiritual life will grow. And I promise you, it's just going to get better and better. And by the way, how many have been enjoying our worship on Saturday nights? Hasn't it been amazing? It's been awesome. I'm telling you, buckle up because we got more coming. It's just going to be absolutely incredible. Let's get right into our series called 40 Days of Love. We are on a 40-day journey. Be here every week. If you did not bring a friend or a coworker or a neighbor or whatever, bring them next week. It's not too late. They'll be here next week. Tyrone Wells and the American Idol guy will be here the week after. It's going to be an incredible, incredible month at South Hills. Now, let's get into it. Uh, I need a little bit of help, so let's get some audience participation here. Your favorite food. What is it? Someone yell it out. Who said sushi? Sushi. All right. That's fun. Um, There will be none of it in heaven. Uh, Okay. What else? Anybody else? Who said pizza? Italian. Let's just go Italian. Mexicano. All right. Good. Desserts. Favorite desserts. Cheesecake. Cupcakes. Who says ice cream? Chocolate. Cupcakes. All right. Awesome. Absolutely awesome. Uh, how about your favorite movie? How about your favorite movie? Ever in your life, your favorite movie? Jaws. Dumb and Dumber. Now, here you go. We Googled it, and I wanted to find out on, on some polls, America's favorite movies of all time. Here's the top three. Titanic. Godfather and Citizen Kane of all time. America's favorite all-time TV show. My favorite, number one, Seinfeld. Ow! I love Lucy, the Honeymooners, all in the family, the Sopranos. Can you believe The Office didn't make it? I have no idea who, who made this stupid thing. Um, America's favorite desserts. Anybody want to guess what number one is? Pot? No, it's ice cream. Next one is chocolate. Second one is apple pie. The, the next one, the fourth one is Jello. I don't know what in the world. Stupid, you know. Cheesecake is number five. So now when you've got to narrow down one selection of something, it's really hard to do. To just say, you know what, this is, I mean, for food, it's like, well, I like Mexican food, but I like lobster. Lobster is kind of pointless unless there's a lot of butter, but I like it. And or this kind of food, or, or for me, movies. Braveheart's my favorite movie of all time. My favorite series kind of movies is Star Wars, the whole thing. And I've seen Star Wars, just so you know, the original one, 78 times. That's a lot of wasted hours, isn't it? All right. But if you had to narrow down one thing. Now, one day, a long time ago, 2,000 years ago, Jesus was walking on the earth. And he was asked this question. Hey, Jesus, what is the most important thing of all? I mean, if you just had to narrow it down, Lord. What would it be? Now, you got to realize who was asking him this question. It wasn't just some dude walking along. It was these guys known as the Pharisees. Now, Pharisees were very religious people. I didn't say they were Christian or followers of God. They were the kind of religious people that we see today that's like, well, they talk about God, but man, their heads are in another planet. That's what the Pharisees were. Matter of fact, the Pharisees had written 613 laws that they felt everybody should live by. And if you broke those laws, you weren't going to go to heaven. And so one day they came to Jesus and they were trying to trick.
This is an important thing here. Uh, the Pharisees, actually, the 613, I think there were more than that. I'll just work with his number because I, I, I can't remember the exact number. That kind of is neither here nor there. The Mosaic Law can be distilled down into roughly 630, 640 commands. Okay? And all of them hinge on the two commands, love God and love neighbor. What the Pharisees did, though, is that they added a hedge around God's law and and added their own sets of rules. The idea being that if you kept their laws, you'd never come close to breaking God's law. They were really under the impression that they were saved by their self-righteousness. They had made the law doable. We continue. Trick them, you know, they're like, hey, Jesus, real quick, go. What's the most important thing? Let's see if you can come up with an answer. And let's see what Jesus said. Let me let me read it to you in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. I'm sorry, uh, verse actually 36. It says, teacher, which is the most important command in the law of Moses? What's the most important thing? I mean, you just you got to narrow it down to 613. Go ahead, Jesus. They're going to trick him. Look what he says. Jesus said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Then I love this one. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, these guys, you don't understand. Let me just give you a little one-minute history. For him to say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and then love your neighbor as yourself, that was a slap in the face to those guys. Because Jesus was quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, Okay? And the Pharisees, they had to memorize a lot of verses and recite them. They felt the only way to go to heaven was to recite certain verses during the day. And they had to recite Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, which is what he just said, love the Lord your God, love your neighbors yourself. They had to recite that twice a day. And so really what Jesus was doing, he was almost kind of slapping the face. You want to know what the most important thing is? It's the very thing that you walk around talking about all the time. That's what's most important. It was actually that verse, that portion of verse was known as the Shaham, Shema. It's called the Shema. It's called the Shema. <laughs> Which comes from the Hebrew word for listener here. Shema Ha Israel. The Lord our God. The Lord is one. That's where it comes from. <sighs> okay, now keep in mind, Pastor Songson here does not properly understand the connection between law and gospel. And I'm also a little concerned about his reading of this text, which is just a portion of scripture that they constantly quoted. But here's the interesting thing. The word love, he says, love the Lord your God, most important thing of all. Love God with all your heart and then love people. Love God, love people. Now that word love comes from the Hebrew word Ahab, A-H-E-B, which means with your will and your mind and your action. Here's what Jesus was telling him. Hey, guys, you know what the most important thing in the world is? Do you know what you're going to be judged by when you get to heaven? Do you know what the... Okay, did you hear that? Okay, now listen carefully. This is where this is where the sermon gets really bad. Do you know what you're going to be judged by when you get to heaven? Okay, now I understand... Uh, yeah, this is the standard. And by the way, it's at Matthew chapter 22. I want to read the text in context because I, I'm not exactly sure that he handled this correctly. Let's take a look at it. Matthew chapter 22. Um, let's see. Um, because you're not the power of God. Okay, here we go. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together 
and one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Okay. Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, when you hear the command, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, are you hearing law or are you hearing gospel? Go with law. That's what you really are truly hearing. You're hearing the law. This is not gospel. There is no gospel for you in the law. Okay? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law. And Pastor Songson is now saying, pay attention, guys, because when you get to heaven, this is what you're going to be judged by. Okay? Now, if you get to heaven and God says, all right, let's take a look. Did you love me with all your heart and did you love your neighbor as yourself? Oh, and by the way, did I mention that every time you don't keep these two commandments perfectly, you're sinning. And each and every sin earns you hell. If you're going to be judged by this, how are you going to stand up? I can speak for me personally. I can tell you I haven't got a snowball's chance in Hades of making it. Because I daily fall short of this standard. And if you're honest, so do you. So pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, let's just say that I can wave my magical Bible wand over you. I'm waving my wand over you. And and if, if after I wave the wand, you are now able to love God perfectly and love your neighbor as yourself perfectly until the day that you die. Will you go to heaven based on that standard? No, because you still have every sin that you've committed against God standing against you on the day of judgment up to the point where I wave the magic Bible wand over you. Remember, what does Romans say? By works of the law, no one will be declared righteous in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law cannot save you. Scorecard's going to be when I, when you and I stand there together in heaven, it's going to be whether you loved God and you loved people with all of your will, with all of your mind and with all of your action. It's everything inside of you. I want you to love people with everything that you've got. My son and my daughter, they went to Lincoln Elementary School years ago when they were in elementary, like third and fifth grade. And I remember going there to visit. And uh, how many have ever visited your kids at elementary school? It's great. I'm going to try it at high school. I don't think it'll go over as well. It's coming up this week. Don't tell them. But, um, but in elementary school, it's like, dad's here. And I would bring like McDonald's, you know? And so the kids were all popular, you know, you know, and when I'd bring McDonald's and I'd bring like two decoy fries to throw out to the other kids so my kids could eat real fast. And we would, I would hang out. And I remember when they were in third and fifth grade and I remember going out there, they eat as fast as they could. And my daughter went off with her little friends and she was in fifth grade. And so they were just learning to put on makeup. And, and, uh, so that was like a big thing. And they had a cell phone, but of course it just had bubble gum in it. And, um, and then my son though, he was wanting to play games. Look at my dad, let's play games. You can play with us. I said, okay. So he says, have you ever played kickball before dad? I'm like, get out of kickball. Are you kidding me? I got a scholarship in it. And so 
what a UCLA on that kickball scholarship. And so he's like, let's play kickball. I, okay, so all the kids are out there, all these little third and fourth graders, and they're playing kickballs, you know, and whatever. And I'm out in the field, wherever, you know, I don't even know what base I was on for a second. And the ball goes flying out. Some kid kicks it. Everybody, you know, he's like the kid that could kick. He kicks the ball. They run out there. They're relaying the ball in. He's rounding third. I got the ball in my hand. He's rounding third, and I can see him going towards home. And when, where I grew up, you could just you throw the ball. So I just... And it just nailed this third grade kid. Come back down. He went down. I mean, not just like, ah, I'm talking bam, bam, bam. And all the kids yell out, no Peggies. I had no idea. Honestly, I had no idea what they're talking about. I'm like, what the heck do you mean? No Peggies. And no, no Peggies, no Peggies. You're not allowed to peg people in the thing. I'm thinking, no Peggies. I grew up in home gardens. <laughs> that kid's around at home. It's like, bam, bam, bam. You know, just, no, I'm just playing. <laughs> We never know what we got to do, buddy. Put them out. No peggies. Bunch of sissies. Anyway, so we got done with that game. We went to another game. I don't know what it was. It was some sort of up against the wall game. And I, we used to play it when I was a kid. But the interesting thing was we were playing. And about halfway through the game, I really thought I was winning. And I found out I was losing only because they are scoring differently than I did when I was a kid. And I began to think about this week. I began to think about this idea that God says this, love God. Jesus said, love God, love your, love uh, the people in your life. Love God, love people. It's the most important thing. And I began. It's not the most important thing. It's the summary of the entire law. I began to think about this one thing. I began to think about how, when I was out there at that playing with my son and, uh, and it was interesting because as we were playing together, Here's what I found out, that the way he was scoring and the way I was scoring was different. Now, this is a Eagle Glen golf course. Anybody golf here? Okay, there's four of us. Good. All right. Not at Castle. I'm talking about like a different place. Eagle, <laughs> Eagle Glen. Dude, that's like a, it's 120 bucks to play 18 holes of golf there. Even I could, even my heyday of golf, I could never afford to play there. Eagle Glen golf club. Now, this is a scorecard, Okay. And we have a way in our society, this is a scorecard for golf. We have a way in our society. Okay, now listen carefully to this analogy. He's holding up a scorecard from a golf course. Scorecards are for for keeping score. Listen carefully to the metaphor. Society to keep score. We do. Think about it for a minute. How do we keep score? Let's be honest with each other. How do we keep score in our society? With what? Money. What else? How big the house is, how big the car is, how much money you got. You ever, you ever met, you ever been talking to someone and they're telling you about this great guy that's got this business opportunity. And when they tell you about him, yeah, he's Tom. He lives out in Anaheim, got 11,000 square foot home and a big old car. You ever notice that's always part of their resume? Am I right or wrong? It's not just he's Tom. He's got two kids and he's a wonderful dad. No, that would never happen. No, no, he's got a big house. Okay, oh, well, then I better listen to him. It's our scorecard. We keep score by how much money we have, what we possess, how successful we are, the career, the car. That's how we keep score. Now, you go over here to God's scorecard, and it's completely different. Could you imagine playing a golf game, or any game for that matter, okay? Football, basketball, whatever the game is. And all of a sudden, you're playing this game, and at the very end, you're like, we won! And the ref comes in and says, no, 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 but we score differently here. Okay, here's what Jesus is saying to all of us right now. He's letting you know right now how the score is going to be in life. He's saying, look, he's saying, you're keeping score with all of this stuff, but really, you know what? That really doesn't matter to me. I don't care how big your car is. It's not, I'm not really impressed with how much money you make. And I'm not really impressed with your gifts because by the way, I gave them to you anyway. 
I'm not really impressed with all those. But what I am impressed with, did you love God? And did you love people? See, when we get to heaven, he's going to pull out the scorecard. And this is all right. Let's talk about how you loved God. Did you love me with all your will, with all your mind, and with every action that you have? Let's look at that. And how about your wife? How about your husband? How about your friend? How about your coworker? Did you love them? Your kids? Did you love them? Because that's how he's going to keep score. Does this sound like good news to you or, or me? I mean, this is the good news, right? God's keeping score based on how much you love God and love your neighbor. How are you going to um, fare on the day when God opens up his scorecard? Good luck if this is how you want to be judged. That's what he's going to do. So here's what we're going to do. For the next 40 days, we are going on this adventure together. And I promise you that at the end of this 40 days, at the end of these weekend services, I promise you that our goal is that we would learn to love more God and love more people in our life because that's his scorecard. Uh, what's the rubric, though? Okay, if God has a scorecard based upon how much we love God and love other people, what's the standard? What uh, What's the minimum standard that we need in order to get into heaven based upon that? Because God's keeping score, right, Chris? He's going to pull out the scorecard, right? Is he going to grade it on the curve? If we're in the 50th percentile or above... On the curve, God will say, oh, yeah, you're in. You see how this doesn't sound good at all? And I mean, this is a complete confusion of law and gospel. And, uh, boy, I tell you, I'm, I'm hearing this going, man, if that's this is what I'm going to be judged by, I haven't got, I, I haven't got a chance. I'm out of here. And I'm not even going to try to try harder because the standard that God uh, grades that on, by the way, is perfection. I've already messed that up and even given me a second chance or a mulligan the way Rick Warren talks about it. That's not going to help me either. I've messed up my second, third, fourth, fifth, tenth, hundredth, millionth chance. That's it. Nothing else is going to matter. You're not going to impress God with your savings account. I promise you. You're not going to impress him with your car. I have a RAV. I know it's not going to impress him. The devil laughs at me every day. You're driving that. You know, you're not going to impress him. But when we stand before God, it's about do you love God with all your will, mind, and action? And do you love people with all your will, mind, and action? This is the law. And the scripture says we will not be justified, declared righteous before God by keeping the law. But the purpose of the law is to show us our sin. So that's what we're going to talk about this entire time. And I guarantee you, you will be a changed person if you're here, you get plugged in, and you get involved with what's happening and what we're thinking about. Now, we got to lay out some foundations. So here we go. Everybody doing good? Say yes. All right. Look it down with me on your outline. Okay. Here's what you, this is the foundation. We're going to really get into it next week and for the next five weekends. So you got to be here. But here's the first one. Ready? Here's the laws. Here's kind of like a house has a foundation. Here's the three foundations that you got to lay everything out on. Ready? Here it is. If you don't get this, it's all going to kind of be a mess for you. And at the very end of life, you're going to be that you're going to show up to the game of to the game in eternity and you're going to end up empty handed. Your scorecard ain't going to look good. Here. 
I mean, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but up to this point, does it sound like I'm going to get into heaven based upon how much I love God and love neighbor? I, are you hearing the same thing I'm hearing? Here's the foundation. Ready? Number one. Law number one. The best use of life is love. Say it with me. The best use of life is what? The best use of life is love. God made it clear. Jesus made it clear. He made it clear with the Pharisees. What, 613 laws, but here's the two I'm concerned about. Love God, love people. It was the, she- the Sheham. It was Ahab, meaning will. <laughs> it's the Shema. Good night. It makes you wonder. I mean, has this guy actually taken the biblical languages? Shema Israel, Yahweh. Elohim, Yahweh. Echad. The Lord our God. The Lord is one. Oh, man. Oh, man. It's just, uh, it's uh, guys who don't, who haven't taken biblical languages should not under any circumstances, under any circumstances whatsoever, um, should they uh, try to uh, talk about the biblical languages because those who've taken the biblical languages will be able to show, wait a second, um, you don't know what you're talking about. Anyway, hang on a second here. Uh, I want to find something. Uh, 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 yeah, okay. Yeah, moving along. Will, mind, and action. I want you to love God with all your mind and with all your will and with all your action. With everything that you got, I want you to love. It's the most important thing. Now, it occur to you, why is it the most important thing? Why didn't God say, I want you to obey? Why didn't God say, I want you to be kind? Why didn't God say, I want you to be patient? Why didn't God say, I want you to whatever? Why did he say, love God, love people? If you don't do anything else, do that. Because in the end, when you and I stand face to face, that's how I'm going to score you. Okay, did you hear that? And when you stand before God, that's how he's going to score you. How are you going to, how's your scorecard looking? Whether you love God and love people. Okay, why did he do that? Well, here's three things. Let me just show you real quick. Number one, say it out loud with me. Why, under the why, love what? Love validates. Okay, I went to the, uh, and I told you that about a year, a year and a half ago, I went to the White House, and uh, I was just upset, and so I just decided to talk to some people. No, I um, no, I went to the White House, and uh, I had an opportunity to go there, my wife and I, and it was for a meeting, and some, it was a private meeting, and I got invited by this pastor, and we met with all these Congress people, and, and we got to meet, I think I told you, we, we met like, about a year ago, I think I told you, we met, uh, um, we met four doors down from the vice president's office, and uh, it was really cool. Right before the meeting started, I remember I didn't have to go to the bathroom, I just wanted to go to the bathroom. I was like, man, I went to the bathroom in the White House, yeah. Stole some toilet paper, it was awesome, it was a... Incredible moment. But when you don't just show up to the White House and go, here's my driver's license. Months in advance, you got to give all this paperwork to prove that you really are who you say you are. It's like when you pull your driver's license out with your credit card. They want to make sure that you really are who you say that you are. Now, someday you're going to die. Could be 50 minutes from now. Could be 50 years from now. But someday you're going to die. What's going to validate when you stand before God and say, I need to come in. I'm a child of God. Really? Why? Okay, listen, so far, have you heard anything of the gospel? I mean, if you if you had walked in off the street and you were sitting in this church on this Sunday and you heard this sermon, what would you think you had to do to be saved? 
Answer, well, love God and love other people. How's your scorecard look? Terrible. Yours? Terrible. Everybody's is terrible. I just read to you Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. No one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Mm -hmm. And I also read by works of the law. By works of the law. What's the summary of the law? Love God, love your neighbor. By loving God and loving neighbor, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight. Not even one. How come you're a child of God? Well, I just say that I am. No, no, no. What's going to validate it? Where's your driver's license? Where's your passport? What's going to prove to me that you really are a child of God? What's really the score scorecard? It's love. It's absolutely love. Did I love people and did I love God with my will, with my mind, and with my action? Look down on your outline with me. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is what? Okay, he says, if you don't love, you don't even know who God is. I guarantee you we're going to have a tough time getting into heaven if we don't love. Tough time getting into heaven if we don't love. You don't even know the half of it. If no one is justified in God's sight, declared righteous by loving God and loving neighbor, tough doesn't even come close to describing how hard it will be. You ain't going to make it, period. Because it's the scorecard. Love with your will, with your mind, and with your action. I think every one of us would say, I love my kids. I love my wife. Okay, but he said it was Ahab. Will, mind, and action. Love God, love people. Look what the next scripture says. If someone says, I love God, and does what? Hates his brother. He is a? For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Okay, he says, you're a liar. If you say, oh, I love God, but you hate people or you don't treat them right or you don't, you don't honor them with your will, with your mind, with your action, you're a liar. The scorecard's not going to match up. You're playing a different game that God's not playing. Everybody get it? All right. So love validates. The second thing is love what? Come on, say it out loud. Love what? Integrates. Okay. Everybody bases their life on something. People always say, well, you know, I don't base my, no one's the center of my life. By simply saying that, you're making yourself the center of your life. Everybody puts something at the center of life. Money will be at the center of your life. A boat will be at the center of your life. Your new business will be at the center of your life. A car will be at the center of your life. A relationship, sex, hobby, whatever. Something's going to be the center of your life. And if it's something's going to be the center of your life, it better be something that no matter what hell comes your way, you're able to stand because you're standing on the right things. That's why it says this, above all, read it with me, Colossians 3.14. Everybody read out loud with me. Above all, clothe yourself with, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. He says, above all, above anything else, clothe yourself in love. Okay, if, if love is the center of my life, it integrates. Follow me, love integrates. Why does it integrate? Because it's part of my spiritual life. I can't have a spiritual life without love. I can't have a marriage without love. I can't have a friendships without love. I can't have a great relationship with my kids without love. I'm, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble when it comes to eternity in heaven without love. It's just not going to work. I need love in my life. Love validates. Love also integrates into every part of my life. And, and love compensates. I love what the scripture says. Most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other for love covers what a mute of sins now here's the reality i know this is going to come as a shock to you but i make mistakes (laughs) (laughs) 
No, really? I find that so hard to believe, Pastor. You're a sinner. They're not just mistakes. I know, it's just mind-boggling. But um, I screw up. I make mistakes. I do a lot of things wrong. But I know that I love God, and I know that he loves me. And the Bible says that love covers a multitude of sins. So why do I make love? God says the best use of my life is love because love compensates. If I love God and I give him my life, he loves me. And the Bible says like a blanket, he covers my sins. No matter how. Okay, notice he just made the forgiveness of sins contingent upon the law. If I love God, then he will cover a multitude of my sins. There's no way to get forgiveness here, then. None. How much I mess up, no matter what I do wrong. Listen to me, folks. Jesus Christ came to this earth. He died on a cross. He paid your price. He paid my price. He paid our sentence. He paid our punishment. He went to the cross for us. He did this for us. And it covers all the dumb and stupid things that you and I do and think. Love covers a multitude of sins. Listen to me. This way. But it also covers a multitude of sins this way. Okay, by the way, that qualifies as a bona fide gospel nugget. Now, here's the problem. Does any of this make sense? He made your forgiveness contingent upon your keeping of the law, loving God. If you love God, then he will cover a multitude of your sins. Here's the good news. Jesus Christ died for all of your mistakes and and, and all that kind of stuff. He doesn't know how to connect the gospel dots here because he's basically preaching salvation by keeping the law and you receiving Christ's forgiveness contingent upon you loving God. Best of luck to you. You can't be saved by keeping the law and know love is the law. Are you following me? In other words, check it out. Because I realize how much God forgives me, if you blow it or I blow it, then we need to forgive each other. Love covers a multitude of the mistakes you and I make to each other in our marriages, in our friendships, in our, with our friends here at the church, wherever. Love covers a multitude of sin. So the best use of life is what? Come on, don't lose me now. We're coming here. Best use of life is what? Why? Because love does three things. Say it with me. Love. Next one, love. And also love does what? Okay, law number two. This is the foundation of everything. Law number two is the best expression of love is time. The best expression of love is time. You see, when you give someone your time, you'll never get that back. Follow me on this. What is a great gift to receive from someone if they love you? Diamonds. (laughs) She's already yelling it. She's blinding me with hers. Give me some sunglasses. Um, Diamonds or chocolates or flowers or a nice car or, you know, a brand new wrap. No, uh, there, there are some certain things, but Here's the thing. I can buy you some flowers and I can replace that money by going to work more. I could buy you a nice diamond necklace and then go and work a little bit and replace that money. But when I give you time, I can never replace that again. It is the ultimate expression of love. When I give you time, it is the ultimate expression of love. Jesus said that the best use of your life is love. There is no other scorecard. There's no other way by which you will, you and I will stand at judgment. But by the way we love God and by the there will be no other way that we will stand in judgment than by what we, than by us loving God. That's salvation 
by works of the law. The love is not the gospel. It's the law. Very sad. The way we love people. And the best expression of this love is time. Because you will never, ever get it back. You can get back the money you spend on a gift, but you can never give back the hour or two or three that you give to someone that you love. When you spend time with your husband, your wife, your friend, your whatever, you love on them, you pray with them, you're your friend, you connect with them, you show them that they matter. When you do those things, you're telling them that they are the most important thing because you're giving them something they will never get back. Everybody get it? My son, when he was nine years old, he was going into another baseball season. Here's the tragedy of this. He's trying to make the law doable just the same way the Pharisees did. And he doesn't even see it. And he plays baseball a lot. He's going into the baseball season. And so he said, Dad, we got to go to sports authority. Yeah, we got to buy some more equipment. Anybody have any kids in sports? It's a sham. I'm telling you. Anyway, hundreds of dollars. So anyway, it's like, oh, you got to buy that. When I, when I was a kid in, in Little League, we had four baseball helmets and we all shared it. Anybody identify with this? No matter how dirty, everybody's got their own thing, their own this, their own that, their own helmets, their own whatever, everything. But their own agents, they're only nine years old. So we go to Sports Authority, you know, and I'm like, all right, son, me and him going there. And we end up spending like an hour and a half there just goofing off. We ended up buying a couple things that he needed, but man, did we goof off. Got in a little bit of trouble, but we goofed off. We were playing basketball in the back and someone told us not to do that, you know. And then, then there was this little scooter and I tied a rope to it and I pulled him, you know, and we were doing that. And we were just doing all these insane things. We pulled out a gun and just went postal. No, um, you might have saw it in the papers. No, we, uh, we just had a blast. We went crazy for an hour and a half. Then we came home. It was dark and the street light was on. We have a little basketball hoop in our front yard. It's not really in our yard. It's just in the street. We've left it there for four years. No one said anything. So there's our court. And uh, we played basketball that night. And I remember dominating because I brought the hoop down to this size. And um, and it was awesome. We had a great time. I remember that night. He's nine years old. Nine o'clock. Time to go to bed. And so I pray with him. And I shut the light off. And I'm shutting the door. And he goes, Dad. This is what he said. I'll never forget. He goes, thanks for spending time with me today. And I thought, he's nine years old. And I, I mean, it just, you know, it kind of seems a little bit above his level. And I, and I remember shutting the door. And I said, love you, buddy. Okay. So, and I remember thinking, he didn't thank me for spending money on him. He thanked me for spending time with him because it's something I'll never get back. It is the greatest expression of love is when we learn to give our time to the other person. I love what 1 John chapter 3, verse 18 says. Dear children, let's not... Let's read out loud together. Let's not what? Merely say that we love each other. Now out loud, let us show the truth by our actions. What does Ahab mean? It's, it's a Hebrew word for what? I said it earlier. Love. And love, and it's the deepest form of love by your will, your mind, and your actions. The best use of love, best use of your life is love. And the best way to express it is time. No question about it. I love what uh, Dr. Uh, Chuck Swindoll said. He writes this about life and how busy we get and how we don't give time to the people in our life that we love. He said, busyness destroys relationships. Listen to this. It substitutes shallow frenzy for deep friendship. Busyness feeds the ego, but it starves those who love us. Busyness fills the calendar, but it fractures the family. Boy, isn't that true? Little by little, it will fracture the family. 
Understand the premise of everything we're talking about for the next 40 days is this thing called love. The best use of your life is love. There is no other scorecard. It doesn't matter what you do or how great you are, how much money you have. It doesn't matter. The best use of your life is love. And the best way to express it is through time, the giving of your time. Wouldn't it be an incredible prayer for you to wake up every morning and when your feet hit the floor after you've slammed the alarm clock 11 times? Anybody do that? Heck no, 12 and your feet hit the floor, that you say something like this, God, if I don't do anything today except love you a little more and love the people in my life, then at least let me do that. That is the most important thing on my agenda today, that I would love you a little more and I would love my people in my life a little more. That is the number one thing on my agenda every single day. Isn't that an incredible prayer? What an incredible thing. Because ultimately, if that's not your prayer, then you're playing a totally different game and you're scoring the game all wrong because this is how he keeps score. Everybody get it? Okay, let's go to the last, final one. Coming to the trail, tail end here. Number three, law number three is the best time to love is now. Write that in. The best time to love is now. All right, just out of a show of hands here, how many are Twilight fans? Let me see. Okay, I just want to let you know that uh, I went, went on vacation uh, about a week and a half ago. And uh, I went to go speak in Portland. And then after spending a day in Portland, we went over to Seattle. I lost my goatee and my sideburns and I picked up a shadow. Shadow! Um, almost like Brad Pitt, almost, but anyway. Um, so we're there in Seattle, and the, the, one of the major parts, besides me speaking uh, uh, and going there and hanging out with the family, was we promised my daughter that we would take her to Forks. Forks is where they filmed Twilight. Now, you've got to understand where Forks is at, and it's in the most northeast part of the United States. It rains more in Forks than anywhere in the United States. That's why it's dark there, and if you've seen the movie, that's why they filmed it there. There's only 3,000 people that live in the entire town. The average person that was making about fifty to $60,000 in the little flower shop, they've shut all the shops down. They've turned it into souvenirs. They're averaging 600 of, uh, tourist people every single day that are coming in. And they're averaging a quarter of a million dollars each in souvenir sales. I'm moving there next week. So if you guys want... No, I'm... <laughs> Unbelievable what's happening there in Forks. It's insane. But getting there is unbelievable. I mean, you from Seattle, it's a four-hour drive. You got to go across this ferry on your car, and then you got to cross this other bridge, and then you got to drive four hours, and then you're in the middle of nowhere, and it's dark as ever, and then boom, there you are in Forks. And it's all there. I mean, we went there, saw Bella's house and the whole deal. I mean, it was all, for those that are all into it, we saw it all. And uh, and it was it was cool. My daughter was really into it. You got to see her photos. She's on Facebook. So, you know, just... Totally into it. I'm like, hurry it up. This is cold out here. And it's like eight degrees. And, uh, but we had, a, we had a great time. Now, Twilight is a love story. Oddly enough, with a vampire and a werewolf. Shows you how sick we are. Um, but it's a love story. If you, you know, when we think of the word love, we think of, you know, here's what I think we do. When we think of the word love, I think we think, oh, love. Ah, oh, so soft and romantic and bing, you know, and just... So we hear this, 40 days of love. God wants you to love God and love people. And we think that it's, oh, it's a nice, soft message. You need to hear something, okay? It is not a soft message. This is a very strong message. 
This is a message that says, this is the scorecard. And if you don't live by this scorecard, understand, you will see me face to face. And if you don't love me with all your will and your mind and your action, and you don't love the people in your life that way and give them the time and make them the priority, not your money or and your own scorecard, understand this is a very strong message. This isn't, he says, you, if you love God, but you say you love God, but you hate your neighbor or you don't treat people right, he says, you're a liar. This is not some ping, you know, type message. This is very serious. We better learn to love him with our will and our mind and our action and love the people in our life the same way. Or else, all law, this is all law. This is no gospel. This is all law. The best time to love is right now. This is the time to love. You know that uh, Harvard University did a study. It was a 72-year study called the Grant Study. And what they wanted to do was find out how, uh, how people obtain love. For 72 years, it started in 1930. 72 years, they started this study. And they evaluated it generation after generation. They wanted to find out what the, what the issue was with, with happiness and how people got happiness. And so they examined money and careers. They examined people's life until they lived and then they died. And then the new generation came up. 72 years. You know, if you go ahead and Google it, the Grant study. At the very end of it, after 72 years, this is all they could come up with. The single thing that we have found the most is love. And when it comes to loving God and loving neighbor, that's the summary of the entire Mosaic law. By works of the law, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight. It is the most thing. Without it, you cannot have happiness. Okay, God says without it, you're in a lot of trouble when we stand before him. This is not a soft method. By the way, if you're in a lot of trouble when you stand before God, uh, what does that mean about your eternal destiny? Hell. Message. This is a very, very strong message. Chuck Colson, he was a, uh, in 1972, he ran in the election with Nixon, and he forfeited his time with his family. He forfeited his time with his wife, and it damaged them for many, many years. And he wrote this in his autobiography. He says this, As I think back on my life, biggest regret is not spending more time at home. Making family your top priority means going against a culture where materialism and workaholism are rampant. It means realizing that you may not advance as fast in your career as others do. It means being willing to accept a lower standard of living, knowing that you're doing it for the health of your family. It means giving your family emotional security that they'll draw on for the rest of of their lives. It is the single greatest thing. The bottom line is this, that we have a scorecard in our life by which we keep score in life. Well, we got to make money with it. And we understand all of that. But you know what? The best time to love is now. And God said this, made it very clear. You love God with all your heart and you love people. And if you don't do that, that's how I keep score. Here's what I think. I think it's time for us to just kind of you know what? We're done with the way that we keep track of life. We're done with our own scoreboards because they don't work. And we go to God's scoreboard and we say, God, if I don't do anything every single day of my life, the number one thing I'm going to do is love you and love people. That is more important than any business deal, any transaction, any money, any car, anything. We're so busy building our big old houses that we don't build a home. We're so busy making a living that we don't make a life. And this God says, that's enough. It's time for us to love. It is time for us 
to keep track according to God's course. So here's what we're going to do. For the next 40 days, we are going on this journey together. And we are going to teach all of us. We're going to learn how to love people in our life the way that he wants us to love so we can match up to his scorecard someday. And we're going to learn so that we can match up to his scorecard one day. Let me read a passage. It's a tough one. Galatians uh, chapter 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We're talking about slavery under the law. Look, I, I Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no, of no advantage to you. I can testify to every man who accepts circumcision, he's obligated to keep the whole law. That was the, the thing that hinged in the book of Galatians. The Judaizers were coming in and saying, okay, listen, you're saved by grace through faith, but if you're not circumcised, you're not saved. So they were mixing salvation, the free gift of salvation by grace through faith, with keeping the law. Just one thing, you know, circumcision, come on, that's, that's important. But Paul was saying to them that you who do that, you're obligated, obligated to keep the whole law. So you who want to be declared righteous before God by keeping up, living up to his standard, his scorecard of the law scorecard, you've got to keep it perfectly. If you don't, you're doomed. And this is what Paul says. You who are, you are severed from Christ, you who would be declared righteous by the law. You have fallen away from grace. In fact, you're under a curse. Because cursed is everyone who does not keep the entire commandments. Learn to love him the way that we need to. So I encourage you two things. Number one, you be here. Get involved in a small group. Be here. I promise you this is important. I'm telling you it's important. I'm telling you it's a scorecard. You can't miss this. This isn't something where you're, well, you know, I don't know if I can really. No, you're going to miss it. You're going to stand before God and go, well, it doesn't matter. This is the scorecard. Be here. Grow. Learn. Develop. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go ahead and stand up if you could, everybody. You received a ring when you came in. Could you take, if it's on your finger, in your purse, wherever it is, could you just kind of hold it with your fingers like this? Just hold it with your fingers like this. Okay, you don't have to hold it up. Just, just let me see that you have it. Let me see you have it. Okay, now just, now here's what I want you to do. Now just listen. This is, this is something. Okay, you can put your hand down. Just listen now. The Egyptians, now listen to this. The Egyptians were the first people to ever to develop the wedding ring. They actually first made it out of hay or grass. Then it went to ivory or bone. That was the very first one. Do you know why they put it on the left hand? The Egyptians actually... Cue sappy music. ...actually started putting it on the left hand, and it stayed with us ever since. The reason they put it on the left hand is they believed that there was a vein that led from your ring finger all the way to your heart. That's why they did it. In the next 40 days... I'm going to ask that you can either wear this ring or put it on a chain and put it on your necklace or put it on a chain in your rearview mirror. Somewhere where every single day you see this ring and let it be a reminder that it's connected to your heart. Let it be a reminder that you're going to live by God's scorecard from now on. Let it be a reminder that in the next 40 days you are going to do everything you can. Good luck. I hope you get in. Be here. You're not going to find any other reason but to be here so you can learn and grow. 
so that you can learn to love people and God more than you do today. We can learn to spend more time with them. That according to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, love is the highest goal. It's God's scorecard. So here's what I want you to do. We're going to bring a covenant. It's going to come on the screen. I want you to take covenant, a uh, law, the covenant of uh... Take it. And I want you to go ahead and just put it on your ring finger for now. You can do anything you want with it afterwards. Put it on your other ring. Put it on your finger. Just put it on your ring finger just for now. Okay? Hold it there like someone's putting it on there. And then again, you can put it on, 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 your, on a necklace or whatever. Put it on a rear view mirror. I don't really care. But somewhere you can remember it. And I want you to hold it just like this. And I want you to say these words after me. Follow me. This is the covenant. It's up on the screen. I want you to say it with me. This is our covenant. Hold the ring in your hand and say this together. Today... This ring serves as my commitment for the next 40 days. I will learn that love matters more than anything. I will strive to be known as a person who loves God and loves people. I realize today the value of love, and I will not let anyone or anything keep me from this 40-day journey of love. Lord, we just thank you so much that you love us so much. Good luck. I, you know, I don't think the sappy music and the little rings are going to help them at all. I mean, not even close. This is serious, serious error that we've listened to. So much so that I think the people's souls are at stake. Romans chapter 3, verse 24. By works of the law, no human being will be declared righteous in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So what then becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is declared righteous by faith apart from the law. Or is God the justifier of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, he is also the God of the Gentiles. Since God is the one who will declare righteous the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Well, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. For what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, loving God and loving neighbor, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but are counted as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, 
His faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works of the law. Quote, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. You see, salvation is not based upon how good your scorecard is. If it were, you are doomed. Salvation is a gift won by Christ, by his perfect righteousness. You see, his perfect scorecard is given to you as if you were the one who lived it. It's all a gift given to you by faith. And Christ calls you to repent and trust in him alone and what he has done for you, for your salvation. His righteousness, his perfect sinless righteousness is given to you as a gift. God sees you with having perfectly fulfilled the scorecard that he expects to be filled perfectly. Why? Because Christ fulfilled it perfectly for you. That's the gospel that wasn't preached by Chris Songson. And unfortunately, I think the average person walking in off the street after hearing that sermon basically says, man, if I don't love people, then I'm going to go to hell because God demands that's the, the way he's going to score things. And if I don't get busy and get cracking on loving people and loving God, then I'm doomed. Well, actually, that is true. You are doomed. But see, the thing is, what he didn't tell you is, is that 40 days of doing it right isn't enough. It has to be accomplished perfectly from the time you are conceived until you draw your last breath. And there is no human being that has ever done that except for Jesus Christ. Because each and every one of us are born dead in trespasses and sins, and with Adam's sin imputed against us. So good luck. Those of you who want to keep up this scorecard and be saved by this scorecard of loving God and loving neighbors, he makes it sound so easy. All you have to do is spend some time with your kids. Not just not chase after your career more than your family and see you're in. No, it's not true. This was such a train wreck and such a complete mangling of law and gospel that we didn't hear the Christian gospel at all. We heard rank works righteousness. And unfortunately, I think this could potentially lead to some spending an eternity in hell, having thinked, having thinked, having thought the entire time that they were doing what was necessary to get into God's kingdom. And yet the thing that God demands is the thing he gives as a gift. All done by Christ for you. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. We have one that says join our crew and the other one that says donate. Uh, joining our crew is a mere $6.95 a month. And our goal is to get to 1,000 listeners. We're about 60% of the way there. And we need 1,000 listeners to join our crew so that on a monthly basis, well, at least we've hit our first goal. And our first goal is to pay all of our bills every month. And second goal after that is uh, to uh, grow financially enough that we can uh, bring some part-time help in so that uh, you know we can help with the production work here at Pirate Christian Radio and Fighting for the Faith. 
That's we'll talk about that one after we achieve our first goal. And it's a six it's six dollars and ninety five cents a month. It comes out of your account automatically, and you get access to our Pirate Cove if you join. And of course, if you'd like to uh, fill in the amount as to how much you'd like to send to us as your financial gift, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send that along to Post Office Box five zero eight Fishers, Indiana, zip code four six zero three eight. So, what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and the mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.